0: I'm gonna take this out, that way <coughs> you, you can do that too then there's nothing in your way at all. I am a teacher by trade, at least I was. Now I'm an administrator. So uh, teach a general habit of moving when they speak because there's a rule of thumb as a teacher and that is proximity is one of the best ways to keep kids well-behaved. So if you're standing at the front speaking and students aren't behaving, they probably won't just start doing it on their own. But if you walk towards them and stand somewhere near them without saying anything, they will generally feel uncomfortable because the teacher's there and usually not have the conversation that they were having because it was likely something they didn't want the teacher to hear. Now, I won't be wandering because I need proximity here. I'm not worried about that just because it's habit. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we have the freedom to worship and that we have you to thank for sending your son to die on the cross for us. We want to ask your blessing today. Be with myself as I speak. Help the words that are shared here to be yours. And that they will speak to the hearts of everybody, including myself. I ask that you continue to bless us this Sabbath day and through this season as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, greetings from the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Canada. That's where I work now, and I am there as the Associate Education Director for the entire country of Canada. We, uh, that would be for, for those of you uh, that worship here, you're in the Pacific Union, that would be like the Canadian Union. But we've renamed ourselves the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Canada to make it make more sense for Canada itself. So greetings from there, from our education department. Uh, I appreciated seeing the little piece in here about how you guys are working with the little school and that's, that's wonderful. Supporting Adventist education is important, even if you don't have a school of your own at a local church. I think that that's important. Our schools have served and will continue to serve a valuable aspect to what we do. And I say that because in Canada, we have 42 schools that spread across the entire country. About 15 years ago, we had... 78 schools, so we've closed nearly half of them. Now we carry just about the exact same number of students now as we did then. Many people have moved to areas where there are a school and chosen to send their kids to that school, but the way I look at it is that half of our schools are closed that could still have students, so we should have seen an increase not things staying the same but it's also important because we operate one university that's Berman University used to be Canadian University College before that it was Canadian Union College and then there's a number of names that continue on before that but that University is often fed by a number of our church schools those students go to church school they then go to Canadian University College where they may get an education degree like I did Or they may get a a degree in biology, and then they'll come to Loma Linda, and they'll become a doctor. Or they may go on and go into pastoral ministry. And our Canadian church, I know this is true for us, and it's no different really for many of our, our other unions, our church wouldn't exist if it wasn't for our schools. Because that is where we educate the teachers who teach our young people. That's where we educate the pastors who pastor in our churches. And without them, our church wouldn't exist. And there's a fear right now because we've had smaller and smaller graduating classes. We're having a harder time finding teachers. What do we do? What if we have smaller graduating classes with pastors? What do we do? So these are important things to consider. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. I just want to share a little bit of what I'm passionate about so that you know who I am and, and a little bit about myself. I thank you for the opportunity to speak. I always enjoy the opportunity to talk to people and to be in front of people. I never knew that when I was younger and then all of a sudden it kind of came out and after that I never quit talking. But today I want to share a little bit with you about this time of the year. It's Christmas. And To me, that's an important time of the year. It's important because my wife and I were married right between Christmas and New Year's on the 28th, so just a couple days ago. And yesterday, we had an opportunity to drop my sister off at the airport and then spend some time together. Um, It's been a long time that we've spent time together without our kids around. We almost didn't know what to do with ourselves. But then we realized that we could go and buy things like ice cream. (laughs) I knew that would get a reaction from at least somebody in the crowd if it wasn't my only children. The way I like to talk when I speak to people is I like to tell stories and then tie that in to the main message. So if you're a younger person and you think, well, church is kind of for me, at least when I go to Sabbath school, and then after that church is for my parents, that's not true. Churches for you specifically, and in fact, in Sweden, in the 1800s, when they said, nobody is allowed to preach, guess who did the preaching? Children. Do you know why? Because in Sweden, when they, at that time, they also weren't allowed to put children on trial for anything that was considered criminal. So all of a sudden, God's spirit came over five-year-olds who would come up front and preach because that was the only way his word was going to be spread in that country. So you guys, church is just as much for you as anybody else if you're a young person. And if you want something to do that can keep you interested, what I tell my kids to do is, sometimes I know that you have a little piece of paper and you might be drawing during church or something. What you can do to add to your attention span in church, is draw what the sermon's about, and then you'll have like a pictorial diagram of what the pastor was speaking about, and that can tell you something, and it'll be all the points that you picked up on, and then you'll be able to use that to help you remember what the sermon was about and help it make sense to you at your age. So, we're going to start the story. I was standing in a graveyard, in a cemetery. Some people find that to be a little bit strange. I actually find cemeteries to be very interesting places. It might be because on my dad's side of the family, on the Layman farm in Roster, in Saskatchewan, there is a cemetery. This isn't an uncommon thing in Saskatchewan, in fact. Many farms had cemeteries because the families that lived in those areas would bury people who had passed away right on the property. And at one point, my, my uncle, this is a story long before I was ever born, my uncle, when he was just a little boy, maybe the age of my son, and a friend of him, his were over at the house. And my uncle said to his friend, we have a cemetery on the property. And his friend said, no, you don't, you're a liar. He said, yes, we have, our, we have a cemetery on this property. He said, no, you don't. So my uncle said, I'll bet you we do. He said, you don't. He says, well, what will you bet? He said, I've got, and he had one of these, we have, just like you would hear, we have coins that can be worth a lot of money. And there was a penny that had been a mistake. And this penny was worth a fair bit of money at the time. I don't know what it was back in that era, but it was worth a fair bit. He said, I'll bet you that penny that there is not a cemetery on this property. So my uncle took him over to a pile of rocks, and he said, look, turn over any one of those rocks and you'll find a dead ant. <laughs> then he took him to the real cemetery. Apparently, my uncle was never paid out on that bet. That might have been a good thing because that's not something we generally say we should be doing in the Adventist church. But I was standing in a cemetery in Scotland and it was, it was in the city of Edinburgh. Has anybody here ever been to Edinburgh? Edinburgh, Scotland is a really neat city. And as I was in this cemetery, it's just a small cemetery to a small church. And I was reading the gravestones. It's interesting to look at gravestones, especially in old, old cemeteries. Some of these gravestones had 1,500 marked on them. 1,700 marked marked on them. Some of them were falling over, some of them were tilted to the side. Some of these gravestones were very new. Some of them had very young people that were buried there. And I looked at it and I thought that was something else. And then I looked and the church was kind of down off of a hill. And to get to it the way I got to it was not based on kind of the front street. I was out just walking and I had walked down the hill and then into the cemetery and set back into a hill was what appeared to be kind of a crypt, a place where they, they had people that were buried there or maybe cremated, and they, they had all these, these walls that had what appeared to be drawers in them with different, different names tied to each one. And as I was looking at them, I realized that, that these did not attach to the wall, but there, were, there was room behind them. So I would walk behind, and I was looking, and at that point, I had no flashlight on my cell phone like we do in this day and age. So I was trying to read what was going on there, and I realized that there must be something else to this. And I looked, and I saw a set of stairs that were kind of hidden behind one of these these tall um, square pillars, you might call them and it was kind of hidden back there, almost like a false wall, and it went down. And my curiosity got the best of me. That doesn't take much. And I looked and I said, I wonder what's down those stairs? So here's my first question. You don't have to be a kid to answer, you just have to be younger than 98. How many of you would have gone to look down the stairs? I see, I knew you were gonna raise your hand because if you're willing to climb trees, Before a thunderstorm, because that seems safe, I figured you'd go down a set of stairs. Well, I went down the stairs, and I I got to the stairs, and I looked down, I could see it went down, and I noticed it kind of went off to the right, and then just to the left there was an old, old wooden door that was, I could see it was cracked open just a little bit. And I walked down there, and I got down the stairs, and I stood at the door for a bit, and I thought... Well, it would, it would seem this door probably goes back up into the church. And this direction, I could see down, and then it just got dark. And I started to slowly make my way down that hallway when I heard behind me, can I help you? Well, now what do I do? I have this fear and that I'm in a place I shouldn't be. I said, oh, I, I, I kind of stumbled through my words. He says, don't worry, this isn't America. You can go in places if they're open. Which I kind of laughed at because it's true. I, Canada's not much different. You'll have a wide open place with stairways somewhere like that and you could get halfway down and get in trouble for trespassing. But he's like, this is, you're allowed to walk here. There's a reason. He said, let me show you. And I kind of looked at him. I realized that he was, he was likely the priest of this church. And he said, this is neat. Because right over here in this graveyard... This was kind of a symbolic thing. He said it was like they would die and they could come down this corridor. And he said, check this out. And he opened the door at the other end and opened it into this beautiful garden. One of the most beautiful gardens I've ever been in. Hedges that were as tall as this church. With doorways cut into the hedges that were twice as high of that doorway. And you could walk through and these beautiful flowers everywhere. And then he said something interesting to me. He said, do you think those dead people up there walk down here to see them on their way to heaven? And I thought, well, I don't know how to answer this question. I'm not a pastor of the Adventist church, so I'm not going to argue him into the ground very well on his belief system. But I thought, well, I'm not going to lie. I said, no, I have a pretty good feeling they're still up there. I'm not sure I said it quite that way, but something to that effect. And he looks at me and says, I don't either. I don't think that's what the Bible says. And I thought, isn't that interesting? And we had our talk today, and you were talking about people in different denominations, that God has people in each church that are witnesses for him. And I thought, isn't that true? And I have no idea what this man talked to his congregation about. But what I do know is our conversation, theologically, was bang on. And we talked for about five or ten more minutes. And it means something, and I tell you why it means something. When I first started teaching, my first school was a school called Hazelton Adventist Elementary School. And it was up in a place in northern British Columbia, and by northern British Columbia, if you ever look on a map, it's actually really only halfway up British Columbia. But we were about three hours from the Alaskan panhandle coming down near Hyder, Alaska. To give you a bit of an idea where we were at. And in this school, my first experience with the young people in front of me was, well, after getting set with figuring out how to teach, because you learn how to teach when you actually get a job, not when you're in school. And I'm sitting in front of these kids, and I said, it's October. We need to plan a Christmas program. And they said, no! We don't want to do anything up front. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> Which I don't understand why they were so concerned about this because this teacher that had taught them just before I was there taught my kids just before we left the Manitoba Saskatchewan Conference to go to Ontario. And that lady knew how to get kids ready for a Christmas program. She had handbells, and she still does it with the kids that are that age. She would do a handbells concert that would rival that of any adult group with grade one students ringing two to three bells at a time. And grade nine students working like eight bells. They'd do four in one hand, and then they'd switch over. Like, she could do it. And these kids were I don't want to do anything up front. And I'm like, I don't want to do anything up front. I know nothing about music, and I couldn't ever direct hand bells. What are we going to do? And the kids said, well, we want to tell the story of Jesus. I said, okay. I said, so how are we going to do that? They said... Well, we gotta start in the right place. I said, Yeah? So where's that? At the cross. I thought, You guys are brighter than I thought. That's when I started to learn how smart kids are. I mean, I, you know that, but when you really get into teaching kids, you realize it. And here, this group of kids said, Yeah, we wanna start at the cross. So we came up with a plan, and our plan was no talking, no singing all acting, and we had the stage all set up with three different colors of cloth that hung straight across the stage, and each set of cloth had a different color. There was red, there was yellow, and there was blue, and in the red section, at the very beginning, they started with the crucifixion of Christ, and all they did was they acted the section out, and then we played a song afterwards that told the story of that section, and that crucifixion of Christ there were parents that came up afterwards and said they had tears in their eyes. And then we went back and started with the story of the birth of Christ and moved our way forward. And it's important that we keep that all in mind, not just at this time of the year, but all the way through. And I'll tell you why. Have you ever been saved? Has your life ever been saved? Not saved from the the sense of Christ saving us because we all know that. But have you ever had your life saved? I've had my life saved, and I can only imagine it was angels in circumstances. I specifically think of one circumstance, not where my life was saved, it was my sister. My sister Jindalee is the youngest of three. I'm the oldest. I'm the oldest grandson on the scorch side of the family. I'm close to one of the youngest on the other side of the family. And my sister, who is the youngest of us three, we were all at the beach out here visiting my grandparents, And we were all getting ready to go home at the end of the day and my sister was still playing right down by the water and a fairly large wave came in and it wasn't something she expected and it grabbed her and started to pull her into the ocean and I was the only one that saw her as her legs and arms were flailing in the air as the wave was tossing her and pulling her towards the ocean and the first thing that went into my head was I need to grab her and I was up like a shot And I somehow got down there and found a limb to grab a hold of, and I have no idea which one it was, and I grabbed her, and I held her until the wave kind of washed away enough that she was able to stand up. Now, I can't say for sure that she would have been sucked to the ocean, but she thinks she would have. I didn't experience it. I only experienced grabbing her. And I saw the fear in her eyes. And I think about that, and I think about us, We're living in our own world, in our own headspace, and we don't have the fear in our eyes, but Christ still came down and saved us. And there's something important about that and something we need to keep in mind. I want to share this this thought with you. This has to do with our redemption. This also has to do with the redemption of property. This is from Leviticus 25. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possessions, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother has sold. Now skipping a little further ahead, we also have in Isaiah 43.1. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. This is important. This is really important to remember. Okay, so first we're back here and we're talking about if, a, if one of the brethren had to sell something, your relative could come and redeem it. Then we come over here and we have how we're talking about Christ redeeming us. He's called us by name. Name is important because that tells us about the fact that Christ Is our relative. He had to redeem us. But it was a relative that had to do the redemption. And this is important because it tells us why Christ had to be born. I often get quite, and I never knew the answer to this until I studied it to some degree myself. Kids would always ask me, why couldn't Christ just somehow come down to earth as God, deal with the whole sin thing, even if it meant him dying on the cross, and be done with it? Why did he have to go through the whole being born as a baby? And that whole Christmas story, what makes that so important? Because we all celebrate it, and we all know we celebrate it for the wrong reasons if we look at the world around us. But do we even have it all straight in our own heads when it comes to us as Seventh-day Adventists? And I think we have an understanding of it, but this really helped bring it home for me. This is from chapter 33 of The Desire of Ages, under the chapter, Who Are My Brethren?, It says, of Christ's relation to his people, there's a beautiful illustration in the laws given to Israel. When through poverty, a Hebrew was forced to part with his patrimony and to sell himself as a bondservant, the duty of the redeeming of him and his inheritance fell on the one who was the nearest of kin. There is no way that Christ could have redeemed us had he not become human to do so, because he wouldn't have been our kin. It's kinship. He had to be human like us to redeem us. And I thought, that makes complete sense. And it makes sense enough to me that any kid could get it. And now I'm not in the classroom to teach them, so I have to pass that on to to the teachers that are doing that. So, I'm kind of doing this like that story I just told you about our Christmas program. We started with Christ death on the cross, why he redeemed us, his redemption of us, him saving us. But let's just go back now a little bit. We now come to another place, the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story is always interesting to me. The story of Christ's birth has so many twists and turns, if you really pay attention to it, that it almost boggles the mind. There were signs There are people that missed it and the people that missed the signs or knew the signs were some of the elite in Jerusalem. So let's start with this. Here's another story, back to climbing. I like climbing as well. I've always enjoyed being up high. If I have to stay in a hotel with work and I travel a fair bit for my job, I will often try to find a way to get them to put me on the very highest floor they can because I just want a view. I want to see what's out there and I really like rock climbing and I really like ice climbing. Now ice climbing you guys may not have an understanding of much about ice climbing out here but basically it's like rock climbing. You have tools in your hand that are sharp and you have ice that wants to fall off and you're still tied into a rope but it just it adds an extra element of danger. It also is just enjoyable because it's out in the cold and so when you're climbing and you're working yourself around, you have to understand how to signal each other. Uncle Doug would know this as well. He's sitting here in the the congregation, and he used to climb an awful lot with my father. My father's the one that taught me how to climb. Uncle Doug taught me a little bit as well. There's videos of us going out as families and climbing. But you need to know the signals or the signs So to start, you're all tied in. You have your harness on. You have the rope set up. And if you're lead climbing, it's even more nerve-wracking because lead climbing means that you have to climb above your safety and hook in or set the route. So you're tied in, and the first thing that you need to tell each other is whether or not you're ready to go. And that starts with on belay. That means you got it. Belay on. The next one. Climbing, that's what the climber would say. Climbing, and the belayer on the other end would say, climb on, I'm ready for you. Then they're climbing up, the climber's going along, misses a handhold, falling, and the belayer says, fall on. (laughs) No, the belayer doesn't say fall on. What that tells the belayer is, get ready because this rope's going to get tight, and if I don't lock off, I'm not going to be in as good a position to try to save the person on the other end, right? So I'm out climbing with my dad and my brother. We went to Boulder, Colorado. We had gone out there to do some work through a number of different areas. We where Hol- we were heading down to Holbrook, where the Indian school is. And down in that area... We were going to be spending some time, but before that, in Boulder, Colorado, where my dad had worked on some of his degrees, we wanted to go climb, and we really wanted to climb the third flat iron. Boulder has five flat irons right up against it in these rock formations, and the third one's the popular one. It has a big CU painted on it that somebody snuck up there and did years and years ago for the University of Colorado. and. We wanted to climb the third one and we got there and there was, of all things, we would expect only this in America, a bald eagle was nesting up there and you do not mess with a bald eagle because that's like the national symbol. And we're like, as Canadians, we're just like, people climb our maple trees all the time. Nobody stops them. But that meant we couldn't climb it. So we decided we were going to go to the second flat iron. And on our way up the second flat iron, we're elves elves up to where we were going to start the climb. And it, was a, it had to start with lead climbing. And my dad was going to lead. Lead climbing means you have to let the rope out as they climb and they clip in. And then when my dad would get to the top, he was going to then belay us up. And my brother, he was on the end doing the belaying. And my dad had to go up around a bit of a corner and a ledge so that he was out of sight. And my brother and I, being teenagers, had an attention span of a goldfish. And we're standing there. We just started chatting. Oh, yeah, this is, look at Denver out there. You can see Denver all the way off in the distance. And my dad yells, Slack! Slack means he wants a little bit of a looser... Rope because he needs to probably reach up and clip in or something like that. And we didn't hear him. He's around a corner. It's windy out. Slack! Nothing. Slack! Nothing. Finally, you guys pay attention. Guess what my brother heard? Tension. And he starts pulling, pulling through. What are you going? attention. My dad always told students, never yell, take up the slack, because if you hear, take up the slack, and all you hear is slack, you're going to let a bunch of line out when really the guy wanted attention. So we were pulling him off the mountain. We had failed to hear the signs. It's important. So let's figure these signs out. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod, and the, kings, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him, and they gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together and inquired where the Christ was to be born. They said in Judea, Bethlehem. For this was written by the prophets. But you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judea, are not least among the rulers. For you shall, For out of you shall come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Herod didn't really know what was going on. He was kind of lost in his own world of how great he was. But there was a group of people who knew exactly what was going on. They knew where Christ was supposed to come. But the people that noticed it that knew about it, were kings from the east and lowly shepherds who had it told to them by angels. They had missed something. And here is something very interesting. So that, just in case you're interested or wanted to know, that, of course, is from Matthew 2, 1 through 7. But then in the Desire of Ages, chapter 6, page 62, Ellen White writes this, The priests and elders in Jerusalem were not as ignorant concerning the birth of Christ as they pretended The report report of the angels' visit to the shepherds had been brought to Jerusalem, but the rabbis had treated it as unworthy of their notice. How can we, administrators of the church, not have it told to us? They themselves might have found Jesus and had been able to lead the Magi to his birthplace, but instead of this the wise men came and called their attention to the birth of the Messiah. Where is he born, the king of the Jews? Now pride and envy closed the door against all light. If the reports brought by the shepherds and the wise men were credited, they would place the priests and the rabbis in the most unenviable unenviable position, disproving their claim to be exponents of the truth of God. These learned teachers would now stoop to be instructed by those uh, sorry or would not stoop to be instructed by those who were considered to be heathen or uncircumcised and of course we know what happens after this everything they do is moving towards the eventual crucifixion of Christ. they couldn't handle this fact that they weren't considered to be the elite and again we come back to our Sabbath school lesson and Just how do we reach people? As a church, we know that we've been brought a special understanding of the Bible, but that doesn't put us here when it comes to how we deal with people. That gives us an understanding so that we know how to reach people. So all these people missed the best thing they could have had. I was in France with my family. My mom, my dad, my sister, and my brother, we were all there. And we drove up into France to this citadel that was up on a hill and was just starting to get dark. And we wanted to go up and take pictures. And we hoped that this opportunity to take pictures would be great. And I'll tell you why I hoped, especially. I love taking photography at dusk and at night. Just the sparkling lights. I mean, you can never get it the way it looks in real life. But you just try to grab that. And I was like, I want to get some pictures of this place at night. And we went walking up there. My mom stayed back because of a headache. So it left my brother, my sister, myself, and my dad walking up this road that switched back its way up to the Citadel. And we got to the entrance, and there was a pathway that was just big enough for what looked like a, a horse and carriage. And then there was another pathway that was just big enough to walk through. So my brother and I went walking through the walking pathway. And my dad and my sister, they went through the driving pathway. And as we got about halfway into that pathway, a car came speeding up and came flying through the driving section and my dad and my sister straight against the back wall for obvious reasons, there's a car coming. My brother and I did the same thing. I don't know why, we were in a spot that was not nearly wide enough for a car to go through and we were against the wall. Then all of a sudden, we stood there for a second, and all of a sudden, another car came flying up. Through it went. And my dad looks at my sister, and he says, we've got to get out of here, and he's gone. He just takes off running, and my sister follows him, and my brother and I are like this. What's going on? What just happened? Now, you have to remember, at this point, I was... 21, 22, somewhere in there. My brother would have been 20. My sister would have been 18. But dad is still dad. And when dad panics, it seems appropriate that everybody should panic. So that's what we did. We panicked. And we took off running and we ran up over this bank and we were laying down with our heads just poking over the bank in the pitch black, watching for what else was going to happen next. Dad! Dad, where are you? Nothing. Dad! Nothing. Finally we hear, Jordy! Shad! What? Get over here! We all run over there. What just happened? I don't know what just happened. Shh! Be quiet. Why? I don't know. Just be quiet. That could have been a drug deal. Yeah, it could have been drug deal? Yeah, you're right, it probably was a drug deal. We're, now we're all thinking our own imaginations. So we started to make our way down. We said, we got to get out of here. And we made our way back down the switchbacks and as soon as we got to the road, we ran as hard as we could to a building that we knew was just at the bottom of the switchbacks and we got into that room. <sighs> oh, okay, we're safe now. And then we got our breath and after that we straightened up and we walked on the road like we knew exactly what we were doing. At which point we went to bed. We said the next morning, well, in the daylight, it should be safe to go up there. Let's go check it out in the daylight. And we're all walking up there. We told my mom the story. She's kind of dragging a little bit behind us. Like, should we really be doing this? I'm thinking there's going to be a dead body there. Who knows? Like, it's drug deals. Things go wrong in drug deals. We come up to the same spot, and now we're we're reminiscing the story, and we go look over where we had run and realize that we'd jumped over this hill and then laid flat behind this hill and just feet away, a few feet away from where our feet were, was about a 10-foot drop into a huge hole that went all the way around this castle. We could have just fallen over that. We wouldn't have known So instead, we get to this spot and we go and we walk through and we turn the corner as we walk through and we look at what had happened the night before. Nothing had happened the night before. I know. There were cars all over the place up there. There were people milling about. There was bread shops open. There was restaurants. This whole, people lived there. We saw two cars go in. We saw two cars come out. That's why we had to run, because we didn't want... They were two totally different cars. Two people were coming home. Two people were going into town. We had missed the opportunity to see this bustling little city on a hill at night because we missed the signs and let our imagination get the best of us. Just like the Pharisees. They got stuck in their own little world and they missed the birth of the king of the world because they chose to get stuck in their own thoughts. So where does that lead us? Where does that take us to? Well, at this point now, we know that Christ couldn't have redeemed us had he not been born, and some people missed that. When Christ did redeem us and he died on the cross, there were many that missed it there as well. What we don't want to have happen is for people to miss the next time that Christ comes. But we have a role to play in that. And again, in your Sabbath school, you you'd made the question, you asked the question to some effect of what am I, what can I do? I'm not the pastor. Well, if the pastor is gonna be the one that gets everybody to heaven, we're all doomed. Because we are all called to do a work. And that's where we're going to start to go into this, this aspect to close our, our talk here today. So this story, I've told this story in the past. It involves my wife. You have to remember that we've been married now for 12 years. I've learned a lot in 12 years. So don't judge me for this story, which was a few years ago. But it's an important story to think about. For anybody who's ever taught you understand that there can be some pretty bad days when you're teaching and i had had one of those bad days i'd had three parents who had issues with people at the school which meant they had issues with me because i was a teaching principal the students were not behaving and i knew that i was coming home to my wife leaving because she had I don't know what she was going to, if she was attending a class or there was something that she was doing that evening and I knew I was coming home and as soon as I got home she was going to leave. And that meant she was going to leave me with our oldest daughter Ayla Wynn, which I was not looking forward to because I wanted to kick back and relax and when you have to take care of a baby that does not go to sleep, you can't do that. And Ayla Wynn, she still does not go to sleep. There's just too many things going on. The minute that child was born... Her eyes were open, and she was looking around. And when she should have been sleeping and resting after this long birth, and my wife was resting, she was lying in the bassinet staring. I'm like, So that was what life was like. I'm like, how am I supposed to just relax if I can't get her to go to sleep? So I was already in a miserable mood. And I get home. Don't judge me. I've changed. I'm a changed man. But when I got home, my wife's at the door. Okay, i got to get ready to run. Figure something out for supper. I didn't have time to make anything for you. Not that the wife should have to make food for her husband all the time. But I was already in a bad mood. and I'm like, ugh. So I ate cereal. And then I took my little girl and I said... time for you to go to sleep. You need to go to sleep. And I'm praying, God, put this child to sleep so I can relax. (laughs) Of which God denied my request, making my day seem even worse. But God had something in mind because we live in this world that is full of misery and God wants to give us something that's better and we will forget all, all about the misery of this world. And i had a miserable day and god was going to make it into one of the best days of my entire life because this little girl well here's the thing ayla wynn didn't sleep she also never crawled she was a very large child and crawling wasn't really an option because getting her feet up under her was difficult so we figured she might go straight to walking and that night I was trying to put her to bed and she was refusing go to go to sleep as usual, crying and crying and finally I said, forget it. Come out here, maybe you'll fall asleep on my chest while I relax. And she was just kicking away doing stuff and finally I said, okay, I'll just try it. So I took her, stood her up leaning with her back against the couch, kind of like this, and I went about 10 feet away and I said, okay, let's try walking again. And we've been trying to get her to walk for a couple weeks, a couple months even, and she wouldn't do it. And she's looking at me, she's kind of standing there all wibbly-wobbly and she looks at me and she's wobbling and she just walks straight to me, 10 feet. Her first steps were on my most miserable day, well not obviously because she walked and there's, I've had worse days since, but I've used that to remind myself it can't get that bad. She walked to me, I left my wife out entirely, did it just for me and took her first steps and i the day could have been 10 times worse than that and it still would have been the best day because this little girl took her first steps to me and she did it looking right at me like i'm going to do this dad just for you i think of another one another very brief story i went to nepal on a mission trip And we had a young person there, a number of young people there, sorry. And one older gentleman joined us. His name was Casey. He joined us there because he's a good friend of my dad. And the very first Sabbath that we were there, we went to church in Bonapa. And in this church in Bonapa, he looks over at my dad and he says, this is the first time I've been in a church since I was married and we did all our work and after that we went into the Himalayan mountains to hike around the Annapurna circuit not the whole circuit but part of it and as we're walking through Annapurna and this area he keeps saying I don't believe there's any mountains here because our first two days it was so cloudy and socked in that we couldn't see a thing and we're like what are you talking about we're in the mountain nope I don't believe it there's no mountains here now we knew he was kind of joking but on the third day, when we got up in the morning, those clouds had blown out and we saw the mountains. And I stood on a hill called Poon Hill at 3,100 metres. So that's about nine, 10,000 feet. And I was standing in what felt like similar to this close to tropical. And I looked across at Mount Doligri and I'm like, I would be, no, I couldn't be there. That's all snow. I'm standing like there. If I was on Dollar Creek, I'd be like there. These, huge, these mountains are enormous. And I'm there, and I'm looking at this, and I'm just like, man. And I looked at Casey, and said, do you believe that there's no mountains here now? He says, of course not. Look at these things. That's what God wants to do when he takes us to heaven. It's going to be just like that. So I want to read something to you from Revelation. This is Revelation 21 2 through 5 it says then I John saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as God had prepared it as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying behold the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people Which they can be he's redeemed us God himself will be with them and be their God and God will wipe away every tear There shall be no more death, no more crying, no more sorrow. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I like Revelation. I like Daniel. Daniel's really cool because Daniel tells these stories and it says, seal these words up. And then you get to Revelation and John writes and he says, don't seal it. He doesn't tell him to seal these words up. He says, these, this is get this out there. It's time. People need to know this stuff. And here he says, write these words down. And I think God is just, he's just waiting to come and get us. But we still have work to do. And that's telling people about this opportunity that they don't want to miss out on. It says here... And this is from The Great Controversy, Chapter 42. If I had the opportunity, I'd read the whole thing here today, but we don't have that type of time. But I do want you to keep this in mind, and if you get the opportunity at the end of the day and you're sitting around thinking, ah, maybe I should take a Sabbath afternoon rest and nap, I'd suggest reading Chapter 42 of The Great Controversy. It's the last chapter. Here it says, Now Christ again appeared in full view of his enemies, far above the city, upon the foundation of burnished gold. Now, this part is talking about the end of sin. So this is after the thousand years. Those that he has taken to heaven with him are gathered with him, and he's coming back. The earth is going to be purified. There is going to be no more sin. But before that can happen... Christ said, every knee is going to bow. And so above the city, Satan is standing below on earth with all of the people that chose not to accept Christ as their savior, all raised from the dead for one last time because they're going to understand as well that Christ is king. It says, upon this throne sits the Son of God, and around him are the subjects of his kingdom, the power and majesty of Christ no language can describe. Now, this is really neat. It says, Nearest the throne are those who were once zealous in the cause of Satan, but who were plucked as brands from the burning, having followed their Savior with deep and intense devotion. So the throne is here. Christ is coming down to purify the earth, and right closest to him are those who were most op- opposed to him, but changed their ways. That's pretty cool. I, I read that, and I'm like, man, that's That's neat. Next are those who perfected their Christian characters in the midst of falsehood and infidelity. Those who honored the law of God when the Christian world declared it void. So the next group are those who were on the earth when Christ comes the second time. And behold, the rest of the great multitude stood around him says, now, above the throne, this is right before sin is going to be eradicated forever, above the throne is revealed a cross, and like a panoramic view appear the scenes of Adam's temptation and fall, the successive steps in the great plan of redemption, the Savior's lowly birth, his early life and simplicity and obedience, the baptism at the Jordan, the fast and temptation in the wilderness, his public ministry unfold to the men, uh, to men's heaven's most, sorry, unfold to men's heaven's most precious blessings. The days crowded with deeds of love and mercy, the nights of prayer and watching in solitude in the mountains, then the plottings of envy, hate, and malice, which repaid his benefits, the awful, mysterious agony in Gethsemane, beneath the crushing weight of the sins of the whole world. There Christ, everybody, those who are with him, those who are on the earth, all see this take place before them. It goes on to talk about how they're going to see vividly portrayed before them the trial, Christ's death on the cross, and the awful spectacle of Satan and his angels as he worked against each individual in their choices as they, that they chose to make. But then it's said here, after, and we have this whole section, this is why you need to read it on your own. This whole section then talks about how sin is eradicated, and then at the very end, the very end, it says, the great controversy is ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created it all flow the life and light and gladness throughout the realms of immutable space. From the minutest Adam to the greatest world, all things animate and inanimate, and inanimate in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy declare that God is love. And so here we have sin completely eradicated. And for me, I can't wait because I make mistake beyond mistake beyond mistake. And I go, God, why am I still making these same mistakes? And God keeps saying, Repent. There's going to come a day when those mistakes, it's not going to be an issue. Repent, come back to me, repent, come back to me. We need to tell this to the world. Because if we tell this to the world, the next thing that's going to happen is these people hear that story and go, I want to be a part of that, I want to be there. And I don't think we've done the best job of sharing that. So to close, here we are in California. And by the way, thank you for the good weather. Where I'm living right now, which is Oshawa, is under a cold advisory. It's supposed to be minus 16 Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it with a wind chill warning. And minus 16 is really nothing. I that's nothing compared to the prairies, which is where I used to live in Manitoba, Saskatchewan. Before that, Alberta, where currently the temperature is about minus 40. If you include the wind chill, and I don't need to turn that one to Celsius or Fahrenheit because it's the same. It's cold. So we love this weather. We were getting ready to come here, and it was a long time ago that we actually booked these tickets, over six months ago, because we used air miles to get down here to help bring the family down to be here for my grandfather's 90th birthday. And as we're here, we're getting ready, I bring this little card that I made up for the kids so they could be surprised and I said, open this up, and they had to figure it out. And they're like, oh, when they figured, we're going to California at Christmas. They were so excited. Alawin and Elisha have been here once before. When we were here the first time, we went to Legoland. And Legoland, by the way, is the coolest place. I mean, I could have a career at Legoland just playing with Legos for a living because I still have some boyhood left in me. And they were so excited. And you know what? For the last 2 weeks before we came out here, my littlest one Hanaya kept saying, "Is it California yet? Are we going to California yet?" She was so excited. She'd never been there. She had no idea what California had to offer that it was going to be 27 degrees Celsius. I don't know, you guys were in the 80s yesterday, I think. It's awesome. She has no idea what that's all about. She has no idea that Knott's Berry Farm has the coolest rides ever and some that aren't as fun. She has no idea that going on rides with Oma, that's my my mom, is going to be a blast or that going in the jacuzzi is going to be so much fun or that parties day after day after day are going to tire her right out. Or that playing with her cousins every day are going to be the best thing in the world. She has no idea that any of that is going to be great, but she could not wait to get to California because Elowin and Elisha had told her that it was the greatest place to be. But what do we tell people about heaven? It's going, to be, it's going to be great. But we have to go through this time of trouble. I hope we make it. I mean, if we don't, I guess, I guess heaven will be good. Right? Yeah. No, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to tell people that we want them there with us. Jesus wants us there. He wants them there. And all we have to do to get there is say, take my sins on the cross with you. Because we all know that if we're sinners whether we believe in it or not, we all know that we're sinners. All we have to do is tell people. And I think that our job as Christians is to be like my two oldest kids in how they told Hanaya about going to California. If we can make heaven appear to people like she thinks California was going to be like, and it shouldn't be hard because heaven's going to be a billion times better than this can offer us. If we can do that, nobody's going to say no. That's our job because Christ is coming again. And his reason for Christmas, this whole season, is so that he can make a plan to get us and take us home so we don't have to be on this earth in sin anymore. So as I like to close my talks out when I do worship with the kids, I'd say that hopefully gives you something to think about. And if not, you've got something to read and that's going to give you something to think about because I gave you your homework lesson. But I can't let you go without prayer. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you sent your son to come as a baby and be born in the worst of conditions. To live in the worst of conditions, and to die in conditions that we can't even imagine, holding the sins of each one of us, but you did that because you love us so much and want to spend eternity with us, and I ask today that you allow us to accept that gift of salvation, but not only accept it, share it with people in such a way that they too will want to see that and be a part of it, and that we can all enjoy our fellowship with you in heaven very, very soon.